and um, welcome to the Ideas on Trap podcast. First of all, what is the idea behind the Ideas on Trap podcast and how did you get here? I think the whole thing started about two years ago. I read a paper by the George Mason economist Brian Kaplan called The Idea Trap. So the gist of the paper generally is that why do poor countries really never get rich? No matter how much they try, they keep repeating the same set of policies and the pattern seems to hold. And his answer is that poor countries seem to be in an idea trap. That is, they are in a trap where the same bad ideas that hasn't worked are in some kind of feedback loop where they keep recycling themselves within the system. So, and that sort of ignited a kind of light in my head that, okay, if some of the predictions or some of the analysis of that paper is true, then I started asking myself the question, what do you do about it? Brian's answer seemed to be that it's by luck. And being the stubborn person that I am, I really don't believe in luck. Or should I say, I believe in getting lucky, that you can find a deliberate way to get lucky. So I just sort of thought to myself that, okay, so if you have a system that is in a loop of bad ideas, how do you break that loop? By creating rival ideas, by letting other ideas compete with the ideas that are circulating within the system. And yeah, you see what sticks if you do that. So I started a newsletter because of that. I started writing about some of the issues that I care about at the point. I think the first post was about industrial policy and, you know, so many things that we see in the economic policy making space. And a few months down the line, I thought, oh yeah, there are other people with other ideas who think like I do, who are passionate about rival ideas in Nigeria like I do. So why not just speak to them and explore their thoughts? And that birthed the podcast a few months after that. And yeah, here we are. That's interesting. And so generally, how would you say that the reception, first of all, to the idea of the podcast and to the idea of alternative ideas, how has the reception been for both the ideas on Trap podcast and new ideas that you've been putting out through the podcast? How has the reception been in the space that you have chosen to operate? It's a challenging question to answer, and I'll tell you why. In terms of what I was shooting for when the project itself started, I would say so far I have failed. Because some of the ideas that were actually pissing me off at the time have even gain more prominence right now in policy circles. And in terms of its influence on the idea space generally, it is still a struggle. One thing I learned over the course of running this project is that there are, I would say, meta reasons 
for why people believe what they believe. What I mean by that is that you can have a rival idea to a bad idea, but having a rival idea exist does not guarantee that people will stop believing a bad idea. That's why I said there are meta reasons. You have to explore why people believe what they believe. Original ideas. You know, what are the attractors for those ideas? And the battle still has to be fought at that level. Like, do you simplify in a way that makes it develop some kind of mental hooks? You know, do you communicate differently? So many things. So I would say that Ideas Untrapped, in terms of what I was shooting for when we started, has not succeeded. But on the other hand, we have developed a sizable following. We have managed to create a sizable community of people who like what we do, who follow what we do, who send us feedback, both positive and critical and who appreciates the fact that we are even attempting this despite what is currently so okay so that will naturally lead us into the nigerian situation but before we get there i would like us to clarify what constitutes and what constitutes a bad idea and in this case is it just in terms of outcomes of those ideas but could that not also be due to flaws in implementation or bad timing? So what generally constitutes a bad idea? So how do we see a bad idea and say, oh, this will not work. This should not be tried. Maybe people believe in those ideas because they think now is the time for the idea. We can push it now and there will be different outcomes. But if we are clear on what bad ideas is, maybe we can start to get a clearer understanding before they are even implemented because sometimes... Rolling back bad implementations or bad policy ideas might take time and might have caused severe damage. So how do we, in the beginning, identify bad ideas? I would say these are hard questions, to be honest, because there is no signifier out of the gate that this is a bad idea. I think for me personally, and it reflects in how I lead the team behind this, we've sort of taken the utilitarian approach, which is bad ideas are ideas that generally lead to worse outcomes for people. Whether it is poverty or loss of life or nutrition or inflation, things with negative consequences. So to address one thing that you raised in your question, which is outcomes. Outcomes are a way that bad ideas manifest themselves. But as to whether there are ways of knowing a bad idea right out at the gate, I wouldn't say so. But here's another way of answering that question. If we talk about Nigeria and even much about the world today, there isn't much that is new. A lot of what people try, a lot of ideas that people put out there, especially if we consider things like economic policy or institutional arrangements. They are not new ideas. For example, at the time that Marx was writing Das Kapital, 
you may not be able to say that oh yeah he has some things here that can lead to worse outcomes you may not be able to tell but we've had hundreds of years of people trying various implementations of the institutional arrangements or concrete policies that came out of those set of ideas and we've seen that they lead to worse outcomes generally okay so now in our own case you can then say that oh wait this isn't new this has been done before and there is evidence that it's a bad idea so i would say that the idea space especially some of the issues that the podcast and the newsletters have addressed which is primarily issues around economic policy or the political economy it's not dark matter for example in physics where you say oh you don't know 90 something percent of it they are usually things that have been tried and tested in other settings yes there are always contexts you always want to adjust for local conditions and realities but the central ideas are essentially the same to give you a banal example nigeria did not invent import substitution okay the buhari government did not invent that particular mode of making policy it's an old idea that is being recycled but what you have is that people are convinced that it's a good idea despite that, the outcomes yes that and i'll clarify that they are convinced that it's a good idea or it's, it's a good way of doing things and i think that is like the same point some scholars often make about socialism or communism or whatever where you are you still have communists today if you read jacobin or any of these other outlets they will push in some of these ideas they will tell you oh it is how it was done okay that was bad the idea itself is not bad you understand so you have people who are convinced that oh yeah it's a good idea we are the ones that can do it right that is one of the reasons that can also lead to an idea trap because you think oh yeah there is a certain implementation skill that you have that some other people might have lacked in the past another reason is motives oh the people that tried this in the past and it didn't work they are bad guys we are good guys so because our motives are the right ones if we do it it will work and oftentimes both those raison d'etre are catastrophically wrong we end up in the same place yeah so so firstly why do we have and this is out of our experiences at least based on the outcomes we have seen why do we have a preponderance of poorly executed ideas and outrightly bad ideas in nigeria that has caused harm to so many people at least if we are going by your definition of a bad idea in terms of outcomes why do we have that situation here is it that we do not have the capacity to know better we cannot learn from our mistakes or what exactly are we doing wrong or why exactly are we in this situation in terms of ideas 
this is funny because if you had asked me this a couple of weeks ago, I probably would have given you a different answer. I would have listed a couple of reasons, you know, history, culture, so many other reasons that the social science literature has explored. But we really don't need to go into all that. What is wrong with Nigeria and why we are where we are? This may sound trite to some people, but I hope that we would be able to explore this further and see that it's actually very powerful intuition that leads to prosperity. The fundamental problem with Nigeria, in my opinion, that I'm absolutely convinced of is that our elites, and when I say elites, I don't just mean politicians. I mean people who control resources, private or public. People who can actually shape policy, opinion, you know. They may be in the civil society, you know. They may be in the Nigerian Bar Association or whatever. The idea of economic freedom, that is your right, my right to pursue ideas, commercially with minimal interference is completely alien to us. One of my friends who has actually been a guest on the show did a thread on Twitter a few years ago, I think two or three years ago, that he also referenced recently that one of the beauties of entrepreneurship is that you can test ideas for free mm-hmm. in a society. That is, oh, you, Imano, want to build rockets, right? You research, design, you do everything you have to. You go out and raise money, you know, and you might do it and you fail. But ultimately, it's your money and your investors' money, right? It is costing the taxpayers nothing. That is different from the government saying, oh, yeah, we want to build rockets, And the government will either be borrowing or taxing you to do that. So, for me, that's the central insight in that idea that entrepreneurship gives you a space to test ideas in a society for free. The people who bear the cost are the primary stakeholders in that idea. And they factored into their Exactly. So, save externalities, maybe environmental concerns and the rest, it is costing the society nothing. So now imagine that idea scaled a million times, a billion times, where people have ideas and they are free to test their ideas in a society to the limits of their capacity their resources and with minimal externality on the rest of us. So I would say, I would argue that we do not take the idea of economic freedom seriously. You know, all it takes for some kind of shift in policy in the way we we do things in Nigeria is for any successful niche to come up. It has happened with telecoms, it's happening with tech, particularly the booming fintech subsector, and 
so many other things in the past. Because I lead still fundamentally think that it is the primary responsibility of government to organize production, exploration, innovation, innovation in the society. And that is wrong. But does government not have a role to play in funding or whatever it is, in creating the space for innovation to flourish? Other than allowing you the runway, does government have some, and maybe mitigating externalities, does government have any other role to play? Other than leaving the, leaving the space clear for you to do what you want to do? Absolutely. And let me give you an example. We all admire Elon Musk and what he is doing in the space exploration industry. I mean, he's building rockets. He's an absolute rock star of an entrepreneur. But imagine what it would do to Elon's bottom line with all his brilliance and everything that he's managed to do for himself. Imagine what it would do to his bottom line without NASA's patronage, which is a government agency. Mm -hmm. So I think it was the Venezuelan economist Ricardo Hausmann that first laid out an argument that how you can use government acquisition. And that's just an example. I can use government acquisition to drive a particular innovative activity. You know? So because, oh, I'm government, I have a longer runway than most private people, okay? And I recognize that this particular activity is a net good, okay? So keep producing, and I will guarantee to be your customer for the foreseeable future till you achieve some kind of product market fit, for example. I mean, space travel today is not commercial. It is still largely a government affair. You understand? It's different from building a social media platform. But we realize the technical spillovers of such exploration. So I think it's like the physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said that what should drive vision in government is because you are a government, you want to be around forever. A sovereign state does not foresee extinction. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever threatens it, threatens its sovereignty and everything within that territorial space. So, a business can die tomorrow. For example, look at sovereign debt. Companies declare bankruptcy, they fold up, they sell their assets. But countries go bankrupt. I mean, Argentina has been (laughs) defaulting for hundreds of years. Spain, Greece, I mean, but they are still around. So there's a particular point in their history or a, a particular period where they are not credit worthy. Nobody wants to lend them money or they lend them at a high cost, but they still manage to get some things done. So as for the role of government, government can actually concentrate its efforts besides being the unbiased third party, which we know government is supposed to be. Government can actually concentrate its effort in the high-risk activities that allows people to at least be in business long enough to scale, long enough to scale or long enough to see a promising idea through, you know, because we know the market is unforgiving. And, you know, it's like one of the primary roles of government is to step in in the case of a market failure. Definitely, yeah. So, for example, we talk about government providing public goods 
we know that public goods has market failure okay if i build a road on my streets i don't have any power to stop you from using it and at the same time i cannot guarantee to get you to pay for it there is no public market for that particular good and that is why government exists to solve the coordination problems associated with market failures so yes there is a role for government now does that make government the absolute decider of what people get to pursue of the aspiration that people have in a society no and i would dare say that any government that arrogates such powers to itself will impoverish its people before we go into specifics yeah. i would like us to just touch just one or two of the uh, of these points that you raise mostly about how an economy like nigeria's so how can we snap out of this idea trap if we are in one if you agree that we are in one and how can we right now given our current realities get the elites who in societies have the, the platform the voice the powers to make and change policies how can we get them to concentrate on the right policies and how can a country like nigeria today snap out of an idea trap especially one that we have seen repeatedly to have failed and impoverished people endlessly there are no easy answers to that one of my favorite thinkers right now who has also been a guest on the show the slovenian uh, sociologist samo boa yeah talks about great founders of institutions so if you consider say the china scenario you would say that deng xiaoping was a great founder because he managed to shift chinese institutions and the orientation of policy making away from a particular idea or model that wasn't working one of people's favorite examples is the singaporean guy i forgot Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew, thank you you know who is also a great founder in his own right and like you said great founders of institutions are almost always elites in society there was also another point samuel made in one of his essays that particularly in a country like nigeria that has found itself where we have found ourselves okay there are two things that has to happen for that snap or that shift there has to be new elites rising elites who think differently or there has to be some kind of incentive change for existing elites to see things differently so like <laughs> i know a lot of smart people who i consider friends who would disagree with this for methodological reasons or philosophical reasons i think that what they call the resource cost in economics development economics explains nigeria and where we are better than anything else that i've seen in my opinion and in my own observation and it goes back to incentives why would 
the federal government of Nigeria and various state actors and all these people who sit around every month to allocate oil proceeds. What incentive exactly do they have to change that particular arrangement? It works for them. It's not working for the rest of the country, but it works for them. Until we get to a point where it stops working, okay, maybe there is massive poverty and it threatens some kind of massive unrest, or our oil revenue, which I don't see happening, actually hits zero dollars. That we can no longer leverage anything from that source to keep borrowing. I don't think there's an incentive for our elites to change. In China, it took a famine that killed millions of people. Even though the Great Famine in China did not immediately change things, but it forced people like them to start thinking differently. And they were basically fighting an inside war within the Communist Party to change things, you know, and waiting for their turn to take power. If you understand what I mean. So, either the incentive changes for the existing elite, or we have new elites, people who successfully challenge the system and who think differently. Okay. So, on the issue of elites, Mm. and I want this to take us into the recent past. Yeah. Um, If incentives will not change anytime soon, given that the oil revenue is not going anywhere yeah and elite change is our only immediate hope of any sort of um, lock coming out of or building our lock as you put it yeah. to come out of the idea trap how do you situate the recent issues around the answers and the protest and the responses by government how do you situate that in the bigger picture of growing new elites at least building the foundations for new elites the insights and the new thinking that might probably get Nigeria from where we are. So how do you situate that entire protest within the bigger picture of building new elites and having new elites to challenge the status quo? Okay, so regarding the entire situation, man, that was a very challenging experience. And I mean, some of the issues you raised in the episode, I remember we had about that particular issue so here is how i think about it right because there are lots of threats imposed there is clearly the economic angle okay what led to the harassment by SARS to begin with you see all kinds of things the way some people are dressed yahoo boys and this and that but at the heart of it we know is extortion and of course we know that extortion is an economic phenomenon you either see something from someone else that you want to take because you don't have enough or you are envious of what they have you understand so extortion is at the heart of it and it's economic but looking at the bigger picture and how to situate all that it was For me, it was a lot more than police brutality. Yes, police brutality is the thing, and rightly so. But we have to ask ourselves, why 
does this problem exist? Those are the two central questions for me. Why does that particular problem exist? Or why do we have this particular problem with our institutions generally? It's about the police today, but people have the same experience with all arms of our armed forces. The bureaucracy of the government can be a frustrating experience for you. So there is a general consensus that there is dysfunction. So the question then is why? I had so many engagements with people privately, of course, during that period. And one of the things I saw as the mental model, so to speak, that people were working with is that the government is wicked. It does not respect the rights of the citizens. It does not care about the welfare of the people. All that may be true. Okay, but I'm not in the minds of anybody, so I'm not going to speculate on that. But generally, we can also see that there is a high level of incompetence. If, for example, you have a unit of the police that was created to solve violent crimes, and the only way you know how to do that is by specifically profiling people, which means that you are not using any kind of intelligence in what you're doing. That is an incompetence problem. If that has morphed into something else where the said officers now routinely abuse people, extort them, in some cases kill them, and the government repeatedly struggle to end that or have a solution, there is incompetence. You know, if you go back to the political economy literature, there are two things you consider when you are dealing with government or when people ask government to do X. The first question is, does the government have the incentive to solve this problem? Okay, so in the case of NSAS, it may well be an incentive problem. Maybe the extortion racket is so huge and goes all the way to the top such that solving or ending that particular problem threatens the welfare of the people who are benefiting from it. The second question is knowledge. The knowledge problem. Does the government have the ability or the know-how to solve this problem? And I, I think that people don't think about those two things well enough when we address issues about government or our institutions dysfunction generally in some cases we are well attuned to the incentive problem yeah. you know they don't have the incentive but the knowledge problem we really don't like the people we expect so much so much like someone in the private sector that is paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to solve and research a particular problem we expect the same level of know-how from people in public institutions who are only paid a fraction of that. You know, and it ties into the incentive problem also because if you are not compensated to solve problems, what incentive do you have to, to acquire the know-how to solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And I think the incentive and the knowledge problem it's actually so meta that whatever unit of analysis we choose, it goes deep. 
like if you run a company i mean we can argue about the differences in the skill set of the people that you choose to recruit but why recruit them in the first place what exactly is motivating you okay so it goes deep oh the person in charge of recruitment into SARS, for example in the police service commission what knowledge does that person have in terms of human resources to accurately judge who is fit to serve in an anti-violent crime police unit what is the institutional knowledge that was developed as a condition for recruitment in the first place you understand and if you peel that layer and you think about the guy that put him there you find that you are faced with the same problem why was he put there was it political or was it actually based on the fact that he has the competence to lead that particular institution and design the institutional knowledge requisite to then recruit capable hands capable hands that will function at the front lines you understand so it goes very deep but to just come back to your question and how i think about your answers i think we are showing signs of a society that is thinning out and what do i mean by that people are getting poorer elite aspiration is getting attacked so to speak because if you have a situation where people cannot rise either in status income or wealth okay to be able to challenge the status quo to be able to redesign the status quo to be able to put their ideas forward to fix something you have a lot more people at the bottom of that society than at the middle who can actually rise or people fall to the bottom faster than they rise to the top you have a society that is thinning out and that shows in what I mean, one fantastic insight that one of my guests, Christo Gumorede, also gave was to look at the pre-democracy period in 1999. And one fantastic point he made was that lots of people were involved in that fight, in the civil society and in the private sector. And I mean, Atedo was on TV talking about how they, despite being a private sector, player being very active in the pro-democracy movement. Patutomi will tell you about how they were funding all kinds of pro-democracy activism and advocacy. You understand? And one important point Chris made was that most of those people went into electoral politics once we had democracy. Such that a particular sector of the society, which is the civil society, bottomed out, you know, thinned out. The only way that you can now have influence in the system we developed afterwards became for you to become a politician, an elected official, either in the House of Reps or in the Senate or at whatever level, or you become a governor. And that affected, I'm not saying that's the only problem we have, you know, but that affected us in a way. So, which I think ties with my point about we are showing signs of a society that is thinning out, okay? And for me, we will continue to see that trend if 
Nigeria, at the very least, as a country, does not start getting rich. And when I mean getting rich, I mean significantly. But the chicken and egg problem here is that at this point, for us to get rich, a lot about the status quo has to change. And we still need people from the same society that is thinning out. So, in keeping with the idea of ideas, yeah, <laughs> if anything like that exists, mm. and from what you said about how we can move on mm. from where we are currently, mm. what new ideas or what ideas are there that exist currently that can be probably locally implemented to spur growth in this economy? In line with the economic freedom theme you spoke about, what kinds of ideas do we need, both generally and specifically, to start to spur growth in an economy like ours that will both change incentives, build new elites, new insights, and all of that, and then everybody will benefit from a growing economy in terms of the rising tide that lifts all boats and all of that. What ideas do we need to be able to break out of this current cycle? It's simple yet complicated. Because the realization you need to have, the intuition that needs to click in your head as an elite or a policymaker or someone that shapes a particular niche or society at large, the intuitions are simple, but they are complicated because as big as the world is, the world has grown smaller. Like... We all exchange ideas thousands of miles apart. So, here is how I start. In Poroma's Nobel lecture, he started with a particular sentence that is very powerful, which I would paraphrase because I don't remember precisely now, which is that in trying to develop a society, at least economically, he says something like, there's always a struggle between the forces of scarcity and abundance. So, I think the direction you choose to go depends on the kind of mentality you embrace in terms of those two forces. If you choose to go with a scarcity mentality, that then determines how you see the world and how you choose to organize your society. And the opposite happens if you actually see abundance, okay? So I think that fundamentally is one of the things we have to get, right? Like, one of the reasons I always allude to the resource cost is that we have this resource and we always think in terms of how to faithfully manage the proceeds and reduce the build. I have never seen a politician in Nigeria Regardless of their social standing, even if they are not corrupt, okay, when they say, oh, we want to fight corruption, it's always about managing what we have, what is existing. We've been producing 2 million barrels of oil for the past, my friends tell me, 25, possibly 30 years. I don't see a politician in Nigeria that will tell you that we need to grow that to 4 million barrels over the next two years. Our target for the next eight years should be 8 million barrels. Why not? We have the reserves. So 
I'm just using a familiar example to demonstrate thinking in terms of abundance and scarcity. If you are in scarcity mode, yes, we are producing these 2 million barrels. How do we distribute this equitably? How do we manage it without all these corrupt people stealing it so that we can use it to solve social problems, build roads, provide healthcare? Meanwhile, there are contingencies. The pricing of this particular resource is not dependent on you. Yeah. You understand? But if you are in abundance mode and you have all these problems to solve and you think, oh man, we can't solve all these problems if we don't grow this thing. I'm not saying we should build an oil dependent economy. I'm just using that as an example. If you adapt that mentality to people, okay, how do I ensure that people in this country can willingly create wealth? And build businesses that is an abundance mentality okay how do we ensure that in the next 20 years we have multinationals that are built right here in nigeria so for me we can argue about a particular basket of policy or philosophy whether you do industrial policy or free market whatever fundamentally if you don't think in terms of abundance alex tabarok gave a very powerful metaphor that i so much love you know which is going back to michael kramer's paper about malthusian forces and population growth so alex's point is ultimately it depends on how you see people so you have to mode people as brains who can produce ideas that use in a society to build things or people are stomachs who always want to consume in one mode you will keep growing in the second mode what you have will never be enough because if your population keeps growing but your output remains the same the number of mouths that you can feed grows and their individual share keeps dwindling. But in the other mode, where the more people there are, the more ideas that can be pursued, the more hands that are ready to work, that are ready to contribute their own quota to society, the more you keep growing. As a matter of fact, the possibility is limitless. For me, that is the fundamental mentality shift that has to happen with this country and there's a bit of a structural dilemma i would say and that's why i made reference to the fact that the world has gotten smaller 200 years ago at the time of the industrial revolution people really know what is going on in other parts of the world if you are in europe maybe living in england through the technology of the printing press and other innovations of the time, you may be able to know what is happening in France, living in England. But it becomes difficult for you to know what is happening in Africa or in China or in Australia without some kind of direct contact. But the world has gotten smaller today. And 
the reason why I bring up that point is that when you look at societies in the past, if you look at England or you look at the United States, their growth phase, you look at China and some other countries with more recent episodes, and you see some of the outcomes that came from that growth phase, inequality, problems with the environment, air quality, and all these other things. I think the structural dilemma that most young people and even modern policymakers face is they always want to build a solution to some of the problems that societies that have grown in the past, the problems they encountered at the later phase of their development. They want to build solutions to those latter phase problems into how we adopt and approach our solution. And I call it the structural dilemma because I'm damn sure it's impossible. So like Nigeria, we need to grow. Or let's say you want to solve the poverty problem and you realize that the way to do that is for the economy to grow, then people will be able to work and do business and pursue their ideas and trade or do whatever and grow their income. Okay, But at the same time, you want to solve inequality problems that the Economist magazine or the New York Times keep yakking about every day. You want to solve that in Nigeria as well. When people are even poor. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, you want to solve environmental problems. <laughs> One of the funniest things I've seen talking about this is African countries signing up to climate agreements. Now, I do not think global warming is a hoax or we don't have environmental problems in Nigeria. But imagine pre-industrial revolution Britain passing the Clean Air Act and not being able to burn coal, they will be poor. They will remain in poverty. Okay? So, what I felt some of the poorer countries should have negotiated is some kind of carbon trading system. You know? A system where they can pollute. Yeah, I said it. And some of that will be offset and the cost be borne by some of the richer countries. I mean, a lot of them have grown at other people's expense in the past, so why not? You understand? So people want government to fix healthcare in Nigeria. They want government to fix roads, power, and all these other things. But on what you get from 2 million barrels of oil or the mega taxes you get from an economy that is barely growing or that has not even grown at a sustained high rate over a long period so it's a structural dilemma <laughs> i mean when people look at china and say oh china is exhibiting some of the problem that america had during its gilded age I'm like, oh yeah, that's how history works. That's how it's supposed to be, you know. 
I remember the great Indian economist Jagdish Bawati writing in his book that for you, he called them track one and track two policies. That is, for you to be able to afford to even do some of your track two policies like social welfare, inequality, redistributing this or that, for you to be able to even afford it, you first need to have growth policies, policies that support growth. Okay, so to answer your question, like I said, it's complicated, but the intuition is simple. We need to start thinking in terms of abundance and not scarcity. I would like to thank both our guests, Toby and Emmanuel, for taking their time to do this. I would also like to thank you you can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms apple podcast google podcast spotify and the rest or you can just subscribe directly at our website ideasontrap.com thank you and see you next time.